This is Deep Dive. I'm Fei Fei. Seventy years ago today, representatives from China, North Korea, and the United States sat down in the village of Pamunjom and signed an armistice agreement. The document put a pause on a three-year-long brutal war that is known as the Korean War in the U.S. or the war to resist U.S. aggression and aid Korea in China. Seventy years later, the memory of this war is still fresh among many Chinese people. They believe participating in the war helped China build a peaceful environment that boosted the morale of its people and facilitated its development in the long run. What led to this war? Why did China decide to get involved? And more importantly, why is it still relevant today? For this, I have one of our familiar voices, Su Yi, also another deep dive host, to retell this part of history from the 1950s. This episode is brought to you on Thursday, July the 27th. For centuries, the Korean Peninsula was a single and unified political entity ruled by generations of dynastic kingdoms. It was occupied by Japan after the Russo-Japanese War in 1905, and annexed five years later. It was under Japanese colonial rule for 35 years until the end of World War II. After the war, Japanese occupation ended. In August 1945, the Soviet Union and the United States divided control over the peninsula. Military of the Soviet Union controlled the area north of the 38th parallel, while U.S. troops controlled the south. In 1948, the South formed its own government in Seoul, backed by the United States, and the North became the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, or DPRK. On June 25, 1950, the war between the two Koreas broke out. It started as a civil war over the future destiny of the Korean Peninsula, but considering the historical background, nobody expected it to be a straightforward civil war. Remember that was the early days of the Cold War. Both the U.S. and the Soviet Union tried to create buffer zones to consolidate their spheres of influence while avoiding direct military conflicts. Just one day after the war broke out, the U.S. quickly sent out naval and air forces to aid the Republic of Korea, A.K.A. South Korea. Over here in China, leaders were also closely watching the war on the peninsula. A major concern for them was that the war could soon spread to the China DPRK border, threatening industrial bases in northeast China. The U.S. government did not only ignore Beijing's warning and ordered troops to cross the 38th parallel, but also sent its Seventh Fleet into China's Taiwan Strait. Two weeks later, in the absence of Soviet representatives, Washington manipulated the UN Security Council to adopt a resolution on dispatching a UN force that it led to the Korean Peninsula. But one thing must be clear: that although it was called the UN forces, the United States is the major player. The United States mobilized a third of its army, half of its navy, and a fifth of its air force to join the war. Its peak troop strength topped 300,000. Since diplomatic relations between China and the U.S. has not been established, India acted as a communication channel between the two at that time. 
Early on October 3rd, then Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai met with Indian Ambassador to China Kavla Madhava Panika, asking the Indian government to tell Washington that if the U.S. crossed the 38th parallel, China would act. In Washington, Secretary of State Dean Acheson dismissed the warning as the mere vaporing of a panicky panic car. Also, the CIA has admitted U.S. intelligence mistakes. It believed at that time that China, with a limited military and economic capability, would not follow through on its warnings. And to make things more complicated, other players in the region had their agendas too. Comparatively speaking, the Soviet Union did not send ground troops, although it did provide logistical support and air support. Its air force shut down 1,309 U.S. planes throughout the war. The Soviet Union provided the Chinese people's volunteers with supplies of weapons, equipment, and ammunition. China's military debt to the Soviet Union reached three billion yuan during the war. It's worth noting that Japan was a major economic beneficiary, though it did not send troops to the battlefield. U.S. troops were stationed in Japan, so military goods were often purchased from Japanese companies. These companies received more than three and a half billion dollars during those three years. By the time the war ended, Japan's gross domestic product had returned to pre-World War II levels. China didn't want any war. When the People's Republic was founded in October 1949, there was so much to do for the new government. Following decades of domestic chaos and years of wars against Japanese invaders and the Kuomintang, inflation was going through the roof at the time. The society was also very unstable, so China's top leadership wanted to shift focus to economic recovery and social stability. What it badly needed is a peaceful geopolitical environment to recover from years of war. At that time, domestic military activities still went on, although the main force of the Kuomintang was gone. A certain proportion of the best of China's military was stationed in the southeastern coast, getting prepared to liberate the Taiwan Island. So it absolutely did not go with the PRC's interest to fight a war at its doorstep with the world's strongest military at that time. But the situation left China with little choice. Starting from late August in 1950, U.S. aircraft began to bomb Chinese border towns and villages, and on September 15th, the U.S. forces conducted the ancient landing, forcing the DPRK forces to retreat. U.S. troops soon took the flames of war to the China DPRK border. It's clear that all this posed a serious threat. To the security of the Young People's Republic. Another side note is that the regions in northeast China threatened by U.S. bombers were the most important industrial bases for China at that time, especially in heavy industries such as steel making. The bombings impacted the production of factories, hurting the country's efforts to recover. Yet, top Chinese policymakers and senior generals split over whether they should send troops to the peninsula. Even though the Chinese government did receive requests by Pyongyang to help fend off U.S. aggression, like I mentioned, China first sent a clear signal telling the U.S. do not step across the 38th parallel 
Well, the United States ignored the warning. Instead, its army poured across the line on October 7th and pressed on towards the Sino-Korean border. In fact, in early October, China's top leadership held three rounds of sessions within days to discuss whether to send forces to the DPRK, and each session would last for hours. After finally agreeing to send forces, another question rose: Who could be the commander? Eventually, the mission fell on General Peng Dehuai, who fought in both wars against the Japanese and the Kuomintang. Peng Dehuai agreed. That as tough as the war would be, it was in line with China's long-term national interests. Facing with the American army presence in the Taiwan Strait and bombing the northeastern region at the same time, Peng believed China would have to fight with the U.S. sooner or later. So the Chinese People's Volunteers Army, or CPV, was formed, and on October 19th, the CPV crossed the Yalu River. To fight together with the DPRK army, it could have been a one-sided war. China's industrial and agricultural output was one twelfth of the United States total, while its steel output one one hundred and forty-fourth of the U.S. total. During the war, the U.S. military used all the latest weapons, other than nuclear weapon. Well, the Chinese People's Volunteers mainly relied on infantry and limited artillery. In general, the two sides were heavily mismatched in weapons, equipment, logistics, and food supplies. On October 25, 1950, the CPV launched the first offensive, driving back the enemy forces to the Chongqing River. On November 7, the second offensive started. Ending with the U.S.-led army retreating to the south of the 38th parallel. Well, that's when the Battle of Lake Changjin happened. We had two war epic movies about the battle these years. It was a fateful battle between the 9th Army of the CPV and the U.S. 10th Corps in the mountainous region near the Chosin Reservoir. This battle is particularly heroic because, in addition to the well-armed and well-supplied opponents, The Chinese troops also had to face life-threatening conditions due to the extreme cold weather and a lack of warm clothing and other supplies. The freezing weather was directly responsible for nearly 30,000 casualties among Chinese soldiers. On December 31, 1950, the CPV launched the third offensive, breaking through the prepared positions of the U.S. forces. And occupy the South Korean capital of Seoul. Up to June 1951, the Chinese People's Volunteers launched five major offensives in seven months, that inflicted heavy losses on the other side, and essentially fixed the front around the 38th parallel. So, from the perspective of the Chinese People's Volunteers, it launched five major offensives in the early phase of the war. In the early phase of the war, the CPV faced severe shortages in supplies. One of the reasons was because in previous wars, Chinese army normally traveled light, which is also called the millet plus rifle strategy. So they didn't have as many trucks and planes to transport supplies like the U.S. Army. Figures show that behind each American soldier, there were 13 people responsible for his equipment, food, and clothing. Well, for the Chinese, 
Each supply soldier was providing supplies for five or six soldiers fighting on the front line. CPV soldiers were hungry on the battlefield. Some recalled eating frozen potatoes or bean and flour mixed powder. They didn't have enough clothing to keep them warm in the minus 40 degrees Celsius weather. Many were frozen to death. Injuries were unable to be sent back for timely treatments. Sometimes, they even couldn't get timely supply of ammunitions. So, in 1951, the CPV set up supply and logistics headquarters. They were responsible for shipping supplies, repairing roads and railways that were destroyed by frequent U.S. bombardments, and also transport injuries off the battlefields. With more supplies. It made possible that the CPV was able to hold back Americans around the 38th parallel, which gained the China-North Korea side leverages in truth talks. Also, from here, China's modern military support system started to take shape. On July 10, 1951, the truce talks began at Kaesong near the 38th parallel, and the talks moved to Panmunjom later and dragged on for two years. For the next two years, the war continued as a stalemate. Both negotiations and combat went on. Both sides believe getting the upper hand on the battlefield helps to consolidate their positions on the negotiation table. On October 14, 1952, the Battle of Shangganling, or known to Americans as the Battle of Triangle Hill or Operation Showdown, started. It was a hill covering only 3.7 square kilometers. The United States had planned to seize the area with two battalions in five days at the expense of 200 casualties, but it ultimately cost 60,000 troops, 43 days, and 25,000 casualties before the battle ended. Over 11,000 CPV soldiers were wounded or killed in the battle. Some historians believe this battle is the final decisive moment that made the United States believe this war is too life and money-consuming, and it simply cannot sustain much longer. Finally, the Korean Armistice Agreement was signed on July 27, 1953. But do remember, this is not a peace treaty. So, although hostilities ceased in 1953, the war has not formally ended. The armistice came with a hefty price for both sides. According to China's official release, a total of 2.9 million CPV soldiers entered the battlefield, and nearly 200,000 sacrificed their lives. Over a million enemy combatants were killed, wounded, or captured. According to data from the U.S. Department of Defense, the U.S. spent 30 billion dollars in total on the war. Nearly 1.8 million American soldiers were sent to the war. Experts have estimated that there might be a total of almost a million military deaths and over three million civilian deaths, making the war the most destructive one of the modern era. In the United States, the Korean War has been called the Forgotten War, from bragging about pushing back the Chinese troops to the Yalu River by Thanksgiving of 1950. To adjusting its strategic goal of fighting a limited war in the Korean Peninsula, it was the first war that the United States did not win in its history. But for China, this war helped build the modern Chinese military that we see today. 
During the war, the CPV set up its own support and supply division. Also, the Chinese Air Force became stronger. Their first combat after founding in November 1949 was against the U.S. Air Force. Not only that, the war defied the invasion and expansion of imperialism and safeguarded the security of China, safeguarded the peaceful life of the Chinese people, stabilized the situation in the Korean Peninsula, and upheld peace in Asia and the world. The victory is a declaration that the Chinese have stood firm in the East, and the victory laid a foundation for China's status in Asian and international affairs. Through the war, China and North Korea established a special close relationship. Earlier this week, North Korean leader Kim Jong Un paid tribute to the martyrs of the Chinese People's Volunteers Army in Hochang. Pyongyang is also hosting events to commemorate the 70th anniversary of victory in the war with guests from China and Russia in attendance. If you wish to learn more about the history behind this war, you can also check the CGTN website linked in the description box down below. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Deep Dive. If you like what you just heard, don't forget to follow us on your podcast platform. Just search for Deep Dive. You can also leave comments to tell us what you want to know about China and beyond. This episode is brought to you by me, Fei Fei, and my colleagues Li Yunqi, Zhang Zhang, and Chen Feng. Special thanks to our host Su Yi. I'll see you in the next one.